Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. What up, buddy? Nate, I got a question for you. Yeah, sure, dude. You were quite the fan, as I remember it. Of I, actually, I don't know if you were quite the fan of nine hundred two one zero, but I know that you were the world's biggest Jason Priestley fan that I've ever known. <laughs> and thirty years ago, this past week, the world was introduced to Brandon Walsh for the first time. And I just got to know what was your deal with Jason Priestley, and and is it still your deal with Jason Priestley? I mean. Well, first of all, thank you for thinking of me, man. Second of all, it's super weird that you, that you would think of me, of me, a full-grown man married to a warm-blooded woman that would probably find this whole conversation very weird. But, uh, well, first of all, I mean, dude, I mean, that, the hair was every man's, uh, you know, hope, really. I mean, if you – and it kind of, like, graduated. People think that it kind of stayed the same, but it actually, as he got a little older, man, I mean, he kind of kept it, you know, a little bit tighter, man. But, like, that – I mean, dude, that haircut was – Legit. I mean, dude, he had this cool, this swag, man. I mean, he was swaggy. I mean, that's the best way I know to put it, man. He was super swaggy. Well, why do you think Luke Perry got all the attention then? I mean, probably for all the reason us good guys suffer to get the girl that you want when you're young, man. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, he was just like, he was Fonzie yeah. just 20 years later. <laughs> and Brandon you know? Walsh was Richie uh, Cunningham? Well, he was Richie with an edge. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> All right, Nate. I appreciate it, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, later. From Mill You Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is season two, episode 40, fake sequels and a magical midlife crisis. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, October 13th, 1990. Hello, dear friends, and welcome, as always, to your weekly stroll down memory lane. I'm thankful yet again that you've chosen to include 30 Pop in your weekly listening rotation. I have good news and bad news. The good news is this will be a pretty quick episode, so I'll have you on your way through the rest of your listening rotation in no time at all. The bad news is that's because there just wasn't a ton to talk about in pop culture news this week in 1990. No major shifts at the top of the various billboard charts, no major TV series premieres or finales, and no major film releases. Not to say there were no film releases, there were, just no real blockbusters. Meaning Steven Seagal's testosterone-packed Mark for Death was, once again, miraculously, the top film at the box office. Miraculous because, again, the critically acclaimed six-time Oscar-nominated Goodfellas was still essentially brand new in theaters, and had only been number one for a single weekend. The Academy got it right. We, the people, however, we chose to throw the money we could have spent on a Scorsesean masterpiece of cinematic historical American biography at an overly violent, unrealistic, poorly acted, poorly written, poor excuse for an action flick starring a ponytail with an itchy trigger finger. Which, no offense, America, sounds about right. But, hey, 
Although I was only 10 years old and couldn't buy a ticket to either one of those movies, I'll share in that blame as I saw Marked for Death at least 25 years before I ever saw Goodfellas. We are an interesting people. There were, however, a few other candidates for that top spot this week in 1990. One of them was this British-American war drama. In the summer of 1943, a fierce battle raged in the skies of Europe. So that's the crew of the Memphis Bell, huh? They're just ordinary men, Colonel. They fly 24 missions without a scratch. That doesn't sound very ordinary to me. Bombardier checking in. Assume positions for takeoff. It was a time when boys became soldiers. Sir, that's the third rank down there. 30 seconds to bomb run. You've never done this before, have you? Why? Am I doing something wrong? Strangers became brothers. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Look out, look out! He got the rookies. Smile? What is there to smile about, sir? You guys have finished 24 missions. One more and you get to go home. That sure make me smile. Target for today is Bremen. Matthew Modine and Eric Stoltz. I know you want to drop the bombs and get the hell out of here. Bandits, five o'clock. We asked these boys to become men. If we don't do it, somebody's going to have to come back here again and do it for us. We asked these men to become heroes. But whatever the danger, whatever the odds. It's our job, ours, nobody else's. Bomb the doors open. We asked them to come home again. Memphis Bell. An extraordinary adventure. I remember hearing of this movie, but definitely never saw it. The trailer leads me to believe it's like a really patriotic hybrid of Top Gun and Dead Poet Society. But I can't imagine it being as badass or beautiful as those films are, respectively. However, it was the film debut for then 23-year-old jazz crooner Harry Connick Jr., a full five years before what I believed until a few minutes ago to be his film debut, Independence Day. Also new in theaters this week in 1990, a film I do remember seeing and enjoying tremendously, despite my general indifference to the sport, the Jim Belushi baseball fantasy-slash-comedy Mr. Destiny. Larry Burroughs has spent his life wishing he had just hit that ball. I just started a half a second sooner. Were you thinking about that silly baseball game again? But today is Larry's birthday. And Mr. Destiny has a way of making wishes come true. Hitting that baseball has spun your life off in an entirely new direction. Things have changed, Larry. This is your house. Those are your children. Cindy Joe's your wife. Happy birthday, darling. God help me. <laughs> now Larry's got everything a man could ever want. Who does girls belong to? Well, the longer you, sir. Get the hell out of here. As you wish, sir. Except the one thing that mattered most. The love he left behind. Ah! I mean, she's my wife, for Pete's sake. She was your wife. Ask me something I couldn't possibly know. The day I got my driver's license, I got pulled over for speeding. I want to know the name of the song on the radio. This one. Touchstone Pictures presents James Belushi and Academy Award winner Michael Caine. My wife hates my guts. My best friend's afraid of me. I'm up in a tree in a tuxedo. In Mr. Destiny. You didn't think everything was going to be perfect, did you? 
It's been a while since I've seen this one, but I do remember loving it. Early 90s Jim Belushi was pretty much a guaranteed win for me, be it this film, K-9, or Curly Sue. And I remember thinking Michael Caine might have been actually magic after seeing this one. I'm honestly still kind of open to that possibility. Anyway, the last new release in theaters this week in 1990, capitalizing on the Halloween season, was what has come to be known critically as perhaps the worst movie ever made. Troll 2. While I do legitimately know of at least one movie that's worse than this, I don't know of any that had an actual theatrical release. So I hopped on a call with my dear friend, cousin-in-law, and semi-regular-ish 30-pop guest Caleb Sanderson to talk about it once again in a segment we call Truly Horrible Things. Caleb, welcome back to 30 Pop. So good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a while, so I'm glad it to It has, be here. man. Pandemics ruin everything. They do. But you're here now, and so what we're talking about today is the movie Troll 2. Have you seen this movie? I have. It's been over a decade. Uh, me and my cousin, we found this movie and watched it together. And yeah, truly horrible in the most beautiful way. So here's some fun things about this movie. So I know you've seen the first Troll, right? Yes. Which was where we were introduced to the name Harry Potter. Harry Potter Jr., in fact, was mm -hmm. the main character of that movie. It's terrible, but Troll 2 came out in 1990. I want us to read through together the Wikipedia article, and you can sort of verify. Okay how accurate most of this sounds to your memory. I also want to read it because it's very, very poorly written and you're a teacher. <laughs> and so feel free to critique any part of this. But the first thing, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a synopsis and then we're going to get into the plot. That's what I really want us to spend our time on. Okay. But did you know that this was actually not intended to be a sequel to the movie Troll? I think I did because they're not really trolls. No, they're goblins. And, so the right. movie was supposed to be called Goblins and it was conceived as a comedy. But then the American producers and distributors were skeptical about its chance to succeed. I'm reading this straight from Wikipedia. And they decided to market it as a horror and as a sequel to the 1986 film Troll, which has, again, Harry Potter Jr. So American producers, which suggests that this was... This was an Italian film. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, was, or I mean... it was at least produced by Italian people. So obviously all of the, <laughs> the actors are American, but it's terrible. So here's what yeah. I want to do. I'm going to just read straight from Wikipedia for you the plot synopsis of the film. And you just feel free okay. to chime in any, any place you like. So here we go. Michael Waits has always dreamed of being a farmer and arranges a home exchange vacation in which he and his family will move into a house in the rural farming community of Nilbog, Goblin spelled backwards, for a month. Okay. The night before the family is scheduled to leave, Michael's son, Joshua, is contacted by the ghost of his dead grandfather, Seth, warning him that vegetarian goblins want to mutate him and his family into plants so that they can eat them. Okay. I want to just say as a longtime vegetarian, that is not what vegetarians do. No. We do not mutate animals into plants so that we might eat them. Well, it seems counterproductive to the whole vegetarian right? I mean, movement, right? Yes. I don't know. Maybe goblins have a different view on what vegetarianism yeah. really is. But. Well, clearly so. So here we go. Seth tells Joshua that goblins can mutate people into plants by feeding them poisoned food or drink. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Joshua's sister, Holly, receives a visit from her boyfriend, Elliot Cooper. 
Holly accuses Elliot of being a homosexual since he seems to prefer spending time with his friends. Elliot promises to show his devotion by accompanying the family on vacation. So Holly is not very forward thinking. No. We can't have male friendships. He wants to hang out with his friends. He must be gay. Obviously. Okay, so the next morning, Elliot fails to arrive and the family leaves without him. They encounter him en route to Nilbog, riding in an RV with his friends, Arnold, Drew, and Brent. Outside of Nilbog, Seth the dead grandfather, Mm -hmm. appears as a hitchhiker who warns Joshua, the little boy, that Nilbog is the kingdom of the goblins and that if his family eats anything while they are there, they will be mutated into plants. So the grandfather appears... As a hitchhiker. As a hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember, do they realize that this is a hitchhiker or or do they realize this as his grandfather? I don't know the answer to that. So all I know is that there is a scene in the trailer, which is linked in the show notes, where you see them going by this hitchhiker holding a sign. Right. That's as much as I know. I don't know how it plays out from there. Okay. Okay. So the family disbelieves Joshua's warnings and continue on to Nilbog where they meet their strange and aloof exchange family, the Presence. <laughs> there, Joshua sets about destroying all of the food the family finds or acquires, such as by urinating over a feast prepared for them with the help of Seth's ghost. I remember that scene, and yes. <laughs> so can you clarify, because the writing here is not great. Does Seth's ghost help urinate on the feast, or is, did he help prepare the feast? No, I think he gives, he's helping with the idea of how to prevent this feast from happening. Okay. So he encourages his living grandchild. He may have been encouraging Joshua to go pee on everything. Go pee on it. But I do, I feel like I remember that scene. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it would leave a mark. That's a pretty indelible idea. So (laughs) Arnold goes for a walk outside of Nilbog and encounters, okay, so Arnold is, who's Arnold? His friends. Okay, so Arnold is one of the boyfriend's friends. I think he is, have you ever seen Power Rangers? Um, He would be the blue Power Ranger Billy, if anyone out there knows what I'm talking about. The guy with the glasses. And maybe it's just because he's wearing a blue shirt. But he has the most memorable line in the whole movie, if that's Arnold. Okay. I hope it is. Anyway. Okay, so Arnold goes Go for a walk outside of Nilbog and encounters a girl being chased by goblins. When Arnold approaches them and insults them, they respond by throwing a spear into his chest. They flee to a chapel in the woods where they encounter the goblins' queen, druid witch Credence Leonore Gilgud, who uses the, quote, Stonehenge magic stone mm-hmm. to give the goblins power. Credence tricks them into drinking a magic potion that dissolves the girl into vegetable matter, a horrifying scene witnessed by Arnold, which prompts him to scream helplessly, only to be mutated into a tree. Yeah, so there's a lot happening in what you just said. A lot. Arnold gets speared. Yes. Which I feel like I remember, but I thought that always came after he made the realization that he was going to be eaten. It may have. I mean, keep in mind, this is a Wikipedia article, so it's only so reliable. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure he has the realization. That part was in the trailer where he looks up and he's like, they're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. But then what they cut out is the best line. If you go search for it, it's out there. He goes, oh, my God. What's it's funny so is I've, I've heard you and Clay, your cousin, quote that line forever, and I never, I yes. never knew, I never knew what I was missing. Frankly, I never knew where it came from. Now I do. So right, and so I'm pretty sure he gets speared later. 
Okay. Because if he was speared prior to that, I don't think he would have had the lung capacity to to sustain that note. Right. <laughs> okay. So the following morning, Michael and Joshua, who are Michael is who? Who is Michael? Michael is Is that a- Michael is the dad. Michael is dad, okay. Joshua's son. Okay, so Michael and Joshua venture into town to buy some food as there is none in their holiday home because it's all been urinated on. <laughs> okay, so when in town, they find the general store closed and Michael falls asleep on a bench. It's not great parenting, but that's fine. <laughs> no. Joshua enters the local church and eavesdrop on a goblin church sermon, which bewails the evils of eating meat. Mm-hmm. The parishioners capture him after seeing his skateboard roll into the church and attempt to force feed him poisonous ice cream. Michael walks in on the scene and becomes suspicious, taking Joshua home. I like that his dad became suspicious <laughs> as they tried to force feed him poisonous ice cream. At a goblin church sermon. At a goblin church sermon, yep. yeah. Nothing about that seems suspicious. No, nope. <laughs> no. Nope. Okay, so later Drew, this is another one of the friends, later Drew goes to— now, t- I'm sorry? If I'm remembering, I feel like there's some—I don't know if shape-shifting is the right word, but like they are presenting themselves as human— and then turn into goblins. Okay. So like whenever he goes into this church, he's not seeing goblins. He's seeing people. Right. Okay. That makes sense from what I saw in the trailer. Yeah. It's, I remember a scene where someone, uh, these people are trying to force feed them ice cream, but yeah, they did not look like goblins in that moment. So, right. So I think that's how they can get away with that. Now I should clarify. I've never actually seen real life goblins. So maybe that mm-hmm. is what goblins look like. I can't, be certain. That's fair. So later, Drew goes to the town because there are no food because there are no food or drinks in the RV. <laughs> the sheriff, Gene Freak, takes him in his car and gives him a green hamburger. Okay, from Burger King. When he arrives in the town, Drew goes to the store and the owner offers him poisonous Nilbog milk. Yes, the cousin of eggnog. Oh, it was just Nilbog milk as the cousin of Ragnar. Feeling dizzy, he goes to a chapel and finds Arnold, who has mutated into a tree. This is, oh my God, Arnold. Yes. Drew drags him out, but Credence appears. This is the Druid witch. Okay. She knocks him out and chainsaws Arnold into pieces. Mm -hmm. I remember this. Drew is then killed off screen. At the house, the family discover that the townspeople have prepared them a surprise party to apologize for the events at the church. Joshua attempts to make contact with Seth only for Credence to appear in goblin form through the mirror mm-hmm. and attacks Joshua. Seth's ghost appears. Okay. Yeah, so they so they were mutating. Okay. Yeah. Seth's ghost appears and chops her hand off with an axe. Credence returns to her chapel where she mutates herself into a beautiful woman in revealing clothes. She then travels to Elliot's RV, where she seduces Brent and drowns him in popcorn. What a way to go. Can you clarify? (laughs) He drowns him in popcorn? What does that mean? I think just that. Like, this isn't sticking out in my head as much, but I wouldn't put it past that. Yeah, they just like, I don't know if that's being buried alive in popcorn. I would assume so. Suffocates him in popcorn makes sense. Drowns him in popcorn does not make sense to me. I'm not really sure. I do want to talk about Seth getting the ability as a ghost to manipulate the physical world. Yeah. You know, it's very Swayze-esque from Ghost, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, is that coming out anytime soon? You have clearly not been listening to the show. We just had multiple I'm sorry. weeks. <laughs> I have been busy. It's uh, just fine. You, don't, you do not owe me your <laughs> listens. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so it is very Swayze-esque. Yeah. That he is chopping hands off of living creatures. 
Yes. Despite being essentially just a floating head from what I could see on the trailer. Or a hitchhiker. Or a hitchhiker. That's true. Yeah, he did yeah. He did come as a hitchhiker. Okay, so here we go. We got three little paragraphs left. Okay. During the party, Seth and Joshua tried to cause a distraction using a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> However, the priest captures them, takes the cocktail, and recites a spell which banishes Seth's soul to hell. Okay, this got dark. Yeah. However, before he vanishes, Seth summons a bolt of lightning from the sky, which you can clearly do when you're dead, Mm -hmm. which ignites the cocktail and kills the priest in a fiery explosion. When Michael extinguishes his burning corpse, his true goblin form is revealed. Okay. And the villagers turn on the weights, Mm -hmm. revealing themselves all as goblins. The weights and Elliot then retreat to the house where the villagers surround them and hold them hostage. This feels like a moment of tension in the plot here. Mm -hmm. Joshua, Elliot, Holly, Michael, and Diana hold a seance to communicate with Seth, who's apparently in hell. Yes. Who returns from the dead and tells them that he can retain a physical form for exactly 10 minutes before he has to return to the afterlife. Sounds legit. Yes. Seth gives Joshua a paper bag containing a, quote, secret weapon to use against the goblins. (laughs) The goblins break into the house and transport Joshua to Credence's chapel, where Joshua opens the bag, revealing a double-decker bologna sandwich? Yes, because the meat, it's bad for them, and bologna is just... You really have seen this. That is remarkable. (laughs) He eats the sandwich, making his body poisonous to the goblins. He then touches the Stonehenge stone along with his family and Elliot, which destroys Credence and all of the goblins present. Mm-hmm. Baloney will do that to a person. You are not kidding. Here we go. The very <laughs> the very end of our plot here. The family returns home where Joshua's mother is seen eating food from the refrigerator. The food, unknown to the family, has been poisoned by the family of goblins who took over their home during their exchange in the country. The film ends with Joshua walking in on a group of goblins eating his mother's green bloated torso off the kitchen counter and offering him a bite. Joshua screams in horror. Credits. You know, if it was originally thought to be a comedy, I think if the American producers went with that, this would have been a much more widespread success than its cult following that I think it has garnered. Now, here's something that I find Unbelievable. The very first note in the production notes here, it says this script originally entitled Goblins began as a way for director Claudio Fragasso's wife, Rosella Drudy, to express her frustration with several of her friends becoming vegetarians, which she claimed, quote, pissed her off. Can that possibly be true that this came from a director's wife being frustrated that her friends were becoming vegetarian? I mean... I want it to be true, even if it's not, because that's fantastic to just concoct this entire story as a response. That has gone down in history as perhaps the worst movie ever made. One of them. Absolutely. And yeah, it's just a response to this emotional reaction that someone else had to other people making probably positive life choices for themselves. Yes. This movie wasn't made in 2020. This was a 1990 movie. This was 1990. Yeah, I want that story to be true. And That's just unbelievable. That unbelievable to me. So the kid that played Joshua wound up making a documentary about it called Best Worst Movie. And I think that Best Worst Movie has actually done really well. It's like critically acclaimed. I mean, it's like yeah. people love it. People love this movie. There is a cult following for this movie, which is remarkable. I think I've actually seen Best Worst Movie. Really? 
Yeah, there's a good chance that I saw that before we saw Troll 2. I'm amazed that you've seen this. I knew as soon as this came up that you were the person I wanted to talk to, and that was without knowing that you had seen this movie. I just thought you'd be really good to talk to about this garbage movie. One of the greatest lines in cinema history is straight out of that movie, so I appreciate the thought. Of course, yeah. And I also apologize for not listening to your ghost episodes, and I will go back and binge all those episodes, I promise. I appreciate that. Awesome. All right, man. Well, hey, always fun to have you on. Look forward to having you on again soon. Hope y'all are staying safe in the pandemic and we will talk to you again next time. Uh, Thanks for having me on, man. Of course. Huge thanks to Caleb for taking some time out of his day to revisit this objectively ridiculous piece of pop culture history. It was, as expected, very fun. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, for the most part, there were no major shifts at the top of the Billboard charts this week in 1990, with one exception. For the third of six straight weeks, we had a new number one single at the top of the Hot 100 chart. But this one is an absolute mystery to me. I'd never heard it or heard of it prior to prepping for this episode. And now, having given it the only listen I will ever intentionally give it for the rest of my life, I'm left a bit dumbfounded. The song, by the late otherwise iconic George Michael, Praying for Time. I would normally use this as an opportunity for one of my very favorite segments on this show, Bad Words, but for some reason it just wouldn't feel right with this one. It's so well intended, I think, but so poorly written. How this song charted at all, let alone became the number one song in the country, is just beyond me. I've linked to it in the show notes if you care to hear just how confoundingly bad it is. I can't say I recommend it, but it's there if you're curious. That's it for this week, friends. Join me next week as we finally get to talk about the beginning of one of the most meteoric rises to international stardom we've ever seen on this planet. It's going to be fun. But until then, remember, there's no coffee in Millbot. It's the devil's drink. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>